Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. 60. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Michael Osborne. Right now, I am sitting at a little spot called Redbud Isle. It's on the Lower Colorado River, which is the river that runs through downtown Austin. Redbud Isle is right downstream of the Tom Miller Dam, which separates Lady Bird Lake from Lake Austin. This island was created kind of artificially. So back in 1900, there was a giant flood and it led to this catastrophic dam collapse. There was this big granite dam that, uh, that failed. And all these, at least the way it was explained to me, all these giant granite blocks tumbled downstream, ended up backing up some sediment and creating this island. It's a beautiful little spot today, even if it's, you know, artificial. Uh, you have all these giant bald cypress growing on it. It's really heavily forested. It's early April, so there's a ton of poison ivy. I'll probably get some before I'm out of here. Poison ivy just finds me. Anyway, that's Redbud Isle. And th there's a little bridge right here. They call it the Low Water Crossing. When I was a kid, we used to come down here all the time. Th these days, it's a sort of built-up park, but it used to just be sort of this forgotten piece of land. And... I'd come down here with my friends and, you know, we'd bring canoes and we'd canoe right up to the dam. And there's this little diversion of water right at the base of the dam where it's, it's almost like this little bit of white water. And I remember when we were 13, 14 years old, you know, we'd go over to that little diversion and dare each other to like hop into the white water and just let it carry us away. <laughs> That's the kind of stupid things that kids do, you know. Later, we were like, man, what is in that water? Is that even clean? I mean, not to mention dangerous. That's just sort of the kind of shit kids do, you know, when they're little. They don't know any better. 
They don't know what's in the water. They don't know what's in the ground. And they don't understand where they may be at risk and not even know it. And that actually brings me to today's guest. Keith O'Brien, I'm a journalist and an author. And my new book is called Paradise Falls. It's the story of one of the landmark environmental crises of the 20th century. It's called the Love Canal. Now, maybe you know something about it. Personally, I had heard of Love Canal. Like, I'd heard that term before, but it was kind of at the periphery of my knowledge. I didn't really know the story. And when I sat down to talk with Keith, I, I told him that. I said, you know, Love Canal was this thing I'd heard of, but didn't really know much about. And I asked him if that was his experience, and he said, yeah, it was. Like I think a lot of people right now, Love Canal was a term that signified something disastrous, something terrible. But most people can't tell you where it is, what it was, or what really happened there. And so that was really where this all started for me. So I just want to say right at the top of this conversation that I really enjoyed Keith's book. I found it to be a total page turner. And one of the things I tried to do in the conversation with him was give you, the listener, a sense of what the book is about without giving too much away. So I started the conversation by asking Keith O'Brien to tell us a little bit about how the Love Canal catastrophe came to be. And it all starts in the late 19th century. In the 1890s, so a full 80 years really before my central narrative begins, an entrepreneur came to Niagara Falls and he had a great idea. He wanted to build essentially an 11 mile canal, a waterway that would divert the Niagara River. So this would have been a small channel for boats. It would have also created a, a hydroelectric power. And he had this entire vision to build a, a model city, he called it, at the center of this canal. The man's name was William T. Love. And William Love made it about a half a mile before he ran out of money and ran out of the will to do it. I mean, it was an incredibly arduous task. And this jagged channel, just upriver of downtown Niagara Falls and these iconic waterfalls, sat there then for decades. It's a watering hole. It's a place where kids go to swim about six miles outside of the tourist district in Niagara Falls. And in the 1940s, the largest industrial taxpayer in town and the largest employer, a company by the name of Hooker Chemical, uh, purchases this land and they begin to use it as a dumping ground for its residues and wastes, its chemical residues and wastes. And this goes on for about a decade before Hooker then sells the land to uh, the city of Niagara Falls and the Board of Education for a dollar. It's a gift. Uh, and around this plot of land, which is now filled in, the city of Niagara Falls builds a school, and around this school grows a neighborhood. Niagara Falls was growing like lots of cities during the 1940s and 50s in that post-war boom. And people were moving east out of downtown Niagara Falls toward the edge of town, which is where LaSalle was. People in this neighborhood did not know of anyone named William T. Love. They did not know of a thing called Love Canal. They called their neighborhood LaSalle. And it was a tidy little grid of, of streets filled with uh, 
affordable starter homes. We're talking single-story ranchers, one and two bedrooms, three bedrooms maximum. Some of them had basements. None of them had a second floor. This was a neighborhood filled with people who were really scraping their way to the middle class and wanted to move there because there was this great school in the center of it and their children could walk to it. But there are some symptoms that, uh, on the surface that that there's something amiss before it becomes clear that there's something to be concerned about and that there's you know toxic exposure. You know there are these small signs. Can you talk about some of those? Yeah, in hindsight, there are so many signs as for this to be absurd. Um, so you know the the canal is transferred to the city and the board of education in 1953. The school goes up two years later. And uh, the school is built effectively right on top of this dumping ground. The rest of it is left strangely undeveloped. If you looked at an aerial picture of LaSalle in the 1960s, you would have seen this grid of streets and you would have seen this school and playground in the middle. And then you would have seen this expansive rectangle of undeveloped land around it. But there were these little hints that started to emerge almost immediately. Uh, Children reported as far back as the late 1950s. Uh, suffering burns on their skin and eyes on the playground. There was a specific kind of rock that was white and pasty that, uh, as it turned out, was uh, a byproduct of a specific kind of pesticide waste that was dumped in the canal that children would sometimes play with because it it was chalk-like and you could draw with it on the sidewalks or on the pavement. Unfortunately, when they did, they would often have these symptoms that I mentioned. But not only that, there were other things. At times in the 1950s and into the 1960s, uh, children would find rocks that would actually catch on fire. It sounds absurd, but I I know it's not a legend because on at least one occasion, these so-called fire rocks made it into the newspaper and the Niagara Gazette. It was a short story in the 1960s in which the the city officials uh, advised students uh, and children that if they found one of these rocks, they should not play with it, either leave it on the ground or submerge it in water. And maybe more alarming, there was at least one documented incident in the 1960s where uh, a 55-gallon drum that had once been filled with chemical waste actually exploded beneath the ground and uh, you know, splattered its uh, contents all over a couple of nearby houses to the point that the paint actually uh, stripped off these homes. This particular drum was filled with the remnants, sludge and residue, of a chemical called thionyl chloride. Now, you know, obviously that doesn't mean much to most people, but thionyl chloride was the central component of a weapon of war that w- we all do know, and that was mustard gas, which uh, Hooker Chemical uh, produced in great volumes in the 19 uh, teens into the 1920s. This drum explodes in the 1960s in this neighborhood. And yet, you know, nothing emerges in big headlines. There are whispers, there are uh, rumors. Why, why did this happen on the playground? Why did the rocks catch on fire? Are there really fire rocks? And it's really not until the 19, late 1970s that these secrets truly do start to emerge in ways that cannot be ignored. I have cancer, and I'm wondering how far those chemicals are going to accelerate that growth. 
I want out of here. I don't want to die here. What we're dealing with is people's lives, their health. You, you've seen the newspaper articles. We're talking about uh, birth defects, cancer, poisoning. Toxic chemicals are contaminating land, poisoning water and air, causing disease, even death. We maintain all along and still maintain we have no legal liability. The full extent of these hazards, I believe, will only be seen in future decades. When I first opened your book and read the first like chapter, so first few pages, like immediately I felt like I was in a horror movie. You know, there was like, I could almost hear high string tension in the background. And, and maybe it's also because, uh, because I'm a child of the eighties that I, I was thinking of like, I don't know, toxic Avenger return of the living dead, you know, some of those Fangoria movies that, uh, right. they were really popular once upon a time that I was like, this is, but then as I'm reading the book, I'm like, this is a horror story, but this is real. Like this happened. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm glad you say that, Mike, because I, and I guess I want to step back for a second and be clear. I think the the core of this story is a human drama, and, and a story of ordinary folks who took on some of the most powerful people in America, from corporate America to the White House, and ultimately prevailed uh, against almost impossible odds. So I think it is a story of resistance, but I agree with you 100%. And that was one thing that I identified very early on in my research, that I wanted to, I wanted to write this story as it developed in the neighborhood. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, if you go there now, people call the neighborhood Love Canal, but that's not what they called it then. It was a desirable place to live. And so I wanted to sort of set that stage of this sort of post-war suburbia, uh, these people scraping their way to the middle class, thinking everything was great, and then starting to, as it, it developed, plant these seeds of doubt about what was actually happening until it was clear that you know there were these horrors in the ground. We put all our money into our home thinking that we were giving our children the gift of a good home and would result in good health. And now what they're faced with is a lifetime of blood tests for possible liver damage and leukemia. And they tell you you're going to have to live there. Oh, I'm sorry, the way I feel is my family's going to die there, not live there. I want to go back to Hooker Chemical. You mentioned a chemical a minute ago whose name I can't remember. And I'm sure there's like a whole long menu of chemicals whose names I will never be able to commit to memory. What I really want to get at here, Keith, is just how dangerous this stuff is that's in the subsurface. Who knew that it might be dangerous and when they knew it? Because those are the essential questions in terms of how we understand responsibility around all of this. Uh, I guess the most, uh, to put it in layman terms, this was a toxic stew that was in the ground there. Again, over the course of 10 years in the 40s and 50s, at the time when Hooker Chemical was doing big business, some of its peak years of operation, it would drive as many as a couple of hundred drums to, out to this canal at the end of a week. And these would be not systematically placed into the ground, but simply dumped into the ground, helter-skelter, one on top of the other, with little regard for what was in each of them, 
as they as they laid next to each other. You know, the chemical I mentioned before was was thionyl chloride, and this was known to react violently with water. Uh, if you had a drop of thionyl chloride and you had a drop of water and you and you put it, uh, you know, in a vial together, it's going to bubble over. It's going to it's going to explode effectively. When they dumped these drums of thionyl chloride in the canal, uh, they would actually puncture them before dumping them because they wanted to expose it to the water now and not five, six, seven months or years from now when they wouldn't be there to watch. So these workers would puncture the drums, dump it in the ground, and then let it bubble over immediately before covering it up. You know, as you can imagine, there were at times, you know, incidents. In the 40s, there were uh, multiple reports of fires at the canal. On at least one occasion, workers uh, were splashed with the contents of these drums and sought medical attention. But while they waited for paramedics to arrive, went to a nearby house and asked to borrow the garden hose to try to clean themselves off. You know, we're talking about multiple known carcinogens, and we're talking about a mix of them that is really, at least in its proximity to people uh, and a school, unprecedented. I think, to me, though, what's sort of lost is that these days, if the arsenic in the water at the drinking fountain at your kid's school or the lead in the water at the drinking fountain at your kid's school tests even so much as 0.0001 higher than the EPA standard, you will get an email from your school notifying you of this slight variation in what they're doing to address it. This was a school that was built effectively right on top of a canal of a landfill filled with 21,000 tons of various chemicals. It's, it's, it's just stunning to think about. The source of the chemicals in the Love Canal is this huge complex operated by the Hooker Chemical Company. During a 10-year period ending in 1952, Hooker emptied more than 20,000 tons of chemical refuse into the old canal. There are 82 different chemicals here, including some of the most deadly substances known to man. Well, you know, if workers in the 40s and 50s, as they're dumping these things, are seeing, you know, reactions take place in the in the water, in the canal, in the, in the sludge and so forth, they must have known... Like, this can't be good. But at the same time, you know, science wasn't as, as advanced as it is now. How do you understand the awareness from industry when they sell the land to the city? How much did they know? How would you characterize their understanding and their position? And to some extent, their culpability, if not legal liability. In defense of Hooker, if, if there is such a thing here, there was very little... Um, true understanding of what was a safe or unsafe landfill in the 1940s and 50s. However, in the 1940s, long before the city of Niagara Falls or the Board of Education ever approaches Hooker Chemical, they're aware that they have some issues at the canal. You know, as I said, before Hooker started using it as a dump, this was a jagged channel. Imagine, if you will, a series of oddly shaped ponds with tall walls uh, made out of uh, mud and soil as if left behind by a steam shovel, because it was. And so for children who lived on the east side of town, it was a lovely place to go. 
The Niagara River right there it has an incredible flow of current. You really cannot swim in it for all the obvious dangers of you're only a few miles from those waterfalls. Yeah, it's um, water. yeah. Exactly. But these were contained and they were lovely little swimming holes. And in my research, you know, I dug up hundreds of documents specifically related just to what Hooker knew or didn't know in the 1940s and 50s. And in one of these memos, going as far back as 1946, so just a few years after they started using it as a dump, and still a full uh, six years before the city would ever approach them to buy the land. One of the top corporate counsels, one of the lawyers at Hooker, writes top executives and explains that he's seen children going to, to the canal with towels over their shoulders and swim shorts on. And he's worried. He's worried because based on his simple uh, layman's view of what he sees when he goes there uh, is water that isn't clear, water that isn't blue, water that not, isn't even brown, but is covered at times with a thick film uh, that was black and bubbly. And he states as far back as 1946, we might have some issues here. Six years later, when the city of Niagara Falls approaches Hooker for the land, the landscape around it has changed greatly. More and more development has moved east. Houses are even closer to this dumping ground. And initially, in the spring of 1952, after they're approached by the Board of Education about the prospects of buying this land, they say in internal memos, effectively, no way. We cannot, we, we cannot give this land uh, to the city. We certainly can't give it uh, to them to use as a school. It is not suitable for those purposes. They're clearly stating that they're concerned about what's in that and, and what their exposures could be if they gave it to the city. But in a span of four weeks, the tone inside Hooker begins to change. And that's revealed clearly in their internal memos. Within four weeks, people are now saying within Hooker, Actually, maybe this is a great opportunity. They specifically specifically reference the homes that have encroached upon the canal. They specifically reference liability, in quotes. And they say, this Love Canal land is rapidly becoming a liability to us. And, and go on to say, if there was a way to give it to the Board of Education and ensure its safety, but also just as importantly, ensure that we would never be liable if something happens later, this is maybe a course we should pursue. Wow. And uh, the Board of Education, over the course of the next few months, agree to those terms. You know, site visits are done. It's determined that these chemicals are deep in the ground, not a threat. And in late 1952, the Board of Education and Hooker Chemical come to terms on this land. And in the letter that Hooker writes saying that they're agreeing to, to sell the land, they managed to even sound magnanimous about it all, as if they're doing the city and the good people of Niagara Falls a favor. And they say that the Board of Education has made a compelling case for the need for more facilities. And if we can be of any help in doing so, then we want to do that. And, uh, and ultimately, they gift the land to the city of Niagara Falls and the Board of Education for a dollar with, uh, with a rider on the sale that says that should there be future problems as a result of what was buried in the ground in the 1940s and 50s, Hooker Chemical will not be held liable. 
I, I'm going to, for the purposes of this conversation and our show, since we're kind of a science storytelling show, I really want to shine a light on Beverly Pagan. I, I want to shine a light on her because one of the things I think you do very well in this book is weave the emerging science with the activism that's happening and the kind of awareness as it grows. I think in order to understand who Beverly Pagan is and her role in this story, you do have to know something about Lois Gibbs. So without going into too much detail, tell us a little bit about Lois Gibbs. She's a central figure in the book. Tell us a little bit about her story. Lois Gibbs is the mother of two children under the age of seven in the late 1970s. She lives on 101st Street in Niagara Falls. It's two blocks from this canal that she does not know exists. And her oldest uh, child, a boy, her son Michael, is going to kindergarten now at the school built on top of the land. And, you know, Lois is what we would describe today as a stay-at-home mom. What they said at the time was she was a housewife. Her husband, Harry, uh, worked at the Goodyear factory, uh, stirring the chemicals that made tires. He was part of this industrial chemical complex. And Lois has barely graduated from high school. She's very self-conscious speaking in front of others. She's consumed with the idea that she's, she's not smart kind of woman who didn't even like to speak up at PTA meetings or teachers' conferences. But in the spring of 1978, starts to read these little stories in the newspaper about problems in the neighborhood that may be connected to this old canal. And Lois does what a lot of parents do. She immediately connects a threat in her neighborhood to her own life, to her own children, in the six months that Michael had attended the kindergarten at the school there, he had started suffering from seizures. It stated in these early articles in the newspaper that some of the chemicals buried in the ground could have negative effects on the neurological sim- systems of people, in particular children. And so she begins to wonder, is Michael's new health problem, seizures, connected to his attending this school on top of this land. She does initially what a lot of parents would do. She simply makes a request to the school superintendent that for the new school year in the fall of 1978, they move Michael to a different public school. You know, had the superintendent or the schools satisfied that request, who knows what might have happened with history, but they deny it. And they tell her no, because there is, according to them, no threat of children attending this school. And with that, Lois is angry. And she decides to start gathering signatures in the neighborhood to uh, shut down the school until they can learn more. And so Lois becomes uh, radicalized. She becomes engaged in a way she never has been before because she's worried about her kids. But she doesn't have the scientific knowledge. She doesn't understand chemicals. She's not a scientist. She's never gone to college. And so she reaches out uh, to a, a, a local scientist for help, someone who could maybe appreciate her. And that's a woman and a mother, too, Beverly Pagan. And, you know, Beverly was a doctorate level uh, biologist who was employed at a a research institute in uh, Buffalo called Roswell Park. Roswell Park, it's funded with state money overseen by the State Department of Health. Beverly, this is in her wheelhouse, Beverly Pagan. She has spent years studying specifically how environmental toxins affect people. 
Beverly has specifically done papers identifying at the time in the 1970s that perhaps cancer uh, might be attributed to tobacco use and cigarette smoking, which at, the time, bed, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which at the time was a, was a bit uh, was was, you know, at the vanguard of what was happening. And she was specifically concerned about how pollution might also be affecting human levels of cancer as well. So when she hears about the problems in this neighborhood and when she meets Lois Gibbs, she decides, sure, I'll help you. I'll help you find out what's here. So I want to get to what they do next. But before I do, when you first introduce Beverly Pagan in your book, you sort of step aside and say, you know, the term environmentalist at this time was a pretty new term. This is 1978. This is about 16 years after Silent Spring. Why did you feel like that was an important bit of context for understanding Beverly Pagan and what's going on in this moment? For two reasons. I mean, these days, the term environmentalism uh, is commonplace. Uh, it's it's used by all sorts of people on both sides of the aisle. The term green means something these days. At the time, it was still relatively new. You mentioned Silent Spring, which, of course, is the book that Rachel Carson uh, published in 1962. There was a line that Rachel Carson wrote at the time that I just think is so powerful and, and I'll paraphrase it here. She said, it's sad to think that the future of mankind m- might be uh, tied to what kind of bug spray we choose to use. This book alarmed the chemical manufacturing industry and created a massive sea change in U.S. policy. And the issues at Love Canal are central to that awakening. And the issues that Beverly Pagan has chosen to dedicate her life to at that point are central to it as well. And so she is like a lot of scientists these days, willing to admit two things at once. She's willing to say, I can be objective about the facts. I can be objective about science. And I can also say objectively that the things we're doing with chemicals, with products, with our cars, with the cigarettes we smoke are affecting our health. Both can be true. Let's get back to the story. So Beverly Pagan and and Lois Gibbs, there's this hint that there's new stories coming out in the newspapers around Niagara Falls that there may be something going on here. Lois Gibbs becomes alarmed. She gets connected with Beverly Pagan, who's at Roswell Park. And they need to go about collecting some data. They need a little bit more information about what's happening. Can you lead us to how how she develops that and kind of what they do next in terms of gathering more information on the science? So... Within a few weeks of Beverly getting involved and starting to run tests out at the neighborhood, the state makes what was considered to be an alarming decision. They initially say that they recommend, in quotes, that people living closest to the canal, roughly 200 families, move away, which, of course, was not really a a very plausible thing for people to do since they were fully invested in their homes. Yeah, these are their and, homes. I mean, exactly. Yeah. And, and then within just a couple of days of that, they reverse themselves uh, and double down and say, actually, we don't recommend you move. We're going to tell you you have to. By early 1978, the neighborhood was convinced it faced a major health emergency. Even then, it took months before the state health department urged that pregnant women and children under two get out of the area closest to the canal. And that recommendation did not satisfy the alarmed community. Would you please tell me? 
swallowed my three-year-old steak. She has a birth defect now. What do you expect of us? That is my child. Where is the difference? What about the seven? Houses now stand abandoned. And so Lois, who had been lobbying to shut down the school until they could figure out what the threats were, was actually caught off guard because they did that. And then they did something five steps further than she thought. And that truly alarmed everybody in the neighborhood. I mean, imagine, you know, being uh, one of the families who, who was not evacuated, who was not ordered to leave, whose home was, say, adjacent to a house that was told to go. People were rightly concerned and rightly worried about where to draw the line. The leaking chemicals have spread well beyond the evacuated houses on the immediate rim of the Love Canal. And to be clear, scientists didn't know where to draw the line. Between state scientists, federal scientists, and Beverly Pagan, there was a great difference of opinion about where the threat ended and where it started. And where the chemicals have gone, it seems, disease has followed. Lois and Beverly, as they dug in on this issue began to look at their own patterns of things they knew in the neighborhood. And they began to plot certain diseases and medical ailments from neighbors, from friends, from the time that Beverly had spent out there. And as they sort of stood back from this sketch and this hand-drawn map and looked at their little tacks on the wall, they realized that there were clusters of certain issues specifically involving children. And, and so as they stood back from this map, they saw birth defects, they saw miscarriages, uh, they saw neurological Seizures, problems. Yeah. And Learning so, disabilities, I mean, all kinds of things. You could populate the list ad nauseum, I imagine. Exactly. And they began to, to question, well, what would cause these clusters here so far away from the canal, two, three, four blocks away? And they quickly set upon a theory, this swale theory, a swale being a creek or a stream bed. You know, this channel that William T. Love had dug in, in, the 19, in the 1890s and then abandoned changed the entire topography of this, this corner of Niagara Falls. Ultimately, the state of New York even tracked down old aerial photographs going back to the 1940s and even earlier and found these, these swales. Some of them were quite large. We're not talking about a shallow creek bed, three feet of cross. There were photos that were ultimately unearthed of children standing in these swales and completely dwarfed by them. Swales that were you know, 20 feet wide and eight feet deep. These were giant stream beds. And the theory that Beverly and Lois and some of the other parents, primarily women in the neighborhood, began to pursue was that 
chemical contamination was much farther from the canal than state and federal officials were willing to say. And they believed it followed the swales. What happens when Beverly Pagan tries to present some of her ideas and some of these images, her data, essentially, to the higher ups? So again, Beverly works at Roswell Park, which is affiliated with the University of Buffalo, but funded and overseen by the State Department of Health. So effectively, she is an employee of the Department of Health. And this is a very expensive problem and a political problem now. In early November 1978, uh, she gets on a plane and she flies from Buffalo to Albany to meet with the highest ranking members of, of the State Department of Health. And she lays out this theory. This meeting, I'm able to rebuild in the book, not just through uh, interviews with Beverly and interviews with other people who are still alive who attended the meeting that day, but with documents, including some documents that have you know, never you know, seen the light of day before. And Beverly leaves this meeting feeling like it was productive. It's a long meeting. It lasts the bulk of the day. She feels like they've heard her. She feels like they're in conversation. Beverly recognizes as a scientist, this is now just a theory. I don't know everything. I don't have everything, but this does seem notable. And she gets on the plane and flies back to Buffalo. In the next day's papers, so in interviews that state officials gave that day, the day that Beverly flew home, they dismiss everything she has said. And ultimately disparage her data with a very specific term. They call it useless housewife data. Beverly was working with Lois Gibbs and other mothers in the neighborhood to gather these surveys, to go door to door and ask people, hey, uh, do you have any medical ailments in this house? And if so, what are they? Beverly had actually created a very detailed and scientific survey for, for the mothers to use so that it would be as scientific as possible. Again, Beverly recognized and even conceded at the time that this is not peer-reviewed science, that this is not something you could publish in the journal Nature, but that it was telling and worthy of more investigation. And initially, anyway, the state of New York said, no, there's no way. Statistics compiled by Dr. Pagan show that in 187 of the homes still occupied in the Love Canal area, there have been 19 nervous breakdowns, 34 miscarriages, 20 birth defects, 41 cases of respiratory disease, three suicides, all well above the national average. So by calling it quote-unquote housewife data, I mean, there's a lot of sexism in there, essentially. What they're saying is that this information that you've gone out and gathered by talking to stay-at-home moms door-to-door about what's going on. You know, it's not really scientific. These are a bunch of hysterical housewives. Something like that, is that is that kind of the implication there? Absolutely. I mean, this is a time where women were wildly unrepresented in the fields of science, technology, engineering, and math, and the STEM fields. And I, and I guess should be noted, still are underrepresented today. I think the latest census figures say that roughly 20% of the STEM industry employs women. At the time, it was less than 10%. We're talking single-digit numbers. And Beverly felt convinced then, and for the rest of her life, I should say, that she was treated the way she was, not just because she was taking a position that was different than the one the state was presenting, 
and obviously a political problem for that reason. She believed strongly that she was being treated differently because she was a woman. I want to get more into the treated differently part because she continues to try to sound the alarm. She continues to try to get the attention of higher ups. And as she does so, her superiors at Roswell Park and at the University of Buffalo, they take what read to me like some extreme measures to try and keep the trap on it, you know, try to try and shut her down, try and get her to not talk. Can you say a little bit about some of the measures that she experienced, some of which she knew about, some of which you discovered as the, over the course of writing this book? Uh, they called her on vacation, demanding documents that they knew she could not produce in that moment. They made angry phone calls to her, as she reported at the time, quote, many abusive phone calls. They required her to begin filing monthly reports about where she was speaking and when. They wanted her to clear every interaction with the media at all times. And, you know, she began to suffer other problems at work, including, you know, having proposals that had been previously fast-tracked toward approval denied for reasons that nobody could fully explain to her. They didn't really have a term for it at the time, Mike, but today we would say Beverly was working in a toxic workplace. And she believed that strongly and had some records to document that. But I did find hundreds more that, again, Beverly had never seen and that nobody had ever utilized before. On one of my research trips, I, I visited the New York State Archives in Albany. I went there several times, actually. And on the first trip, I was just trying to figure out what was there. And there was a, a file that was listed as Beverly Pagan's employment file. So again, just imagine this for a second. In the history of New York, there have been, I don't know, millions of state employees. Uh, not everybody gets a file at the state archives, obviously. Yeah. yeah. And so this was notable to me uh, and surprising that yeah. there was this file with six folders. Unfortunately, it was restricted. It was considered personal and restricted. In order to obtain this file, I had to file a freedom of information uh, request. And then I had to wait roughly 10 months to get the reply. And when I did, I got more than 300 pages of documents that clearly laid out that uh, at a minimum, state employees going all the way to the doorstep of the governor were quite concerned about where Beverly was what she was saying and who she was talking to and how through the entirety of this crisis. And maybe just as notable to me, Mike, is they were clearly still worried about her today. Uh, more than 40 years after these memos were sent, more than 40 years after these memos were replied to, many of these documents that I received were still heavily redacted in the present day to protect who I do not know. I want to take a little bit of a diversion here. Eventually, the federal government does become interested in what's going on at Love Canal. Can you talk to us a little bit about who takes an interest? The federal government was involved in some way almost from the start. You know, from the moment uh, the state of New York realized they would have to evacuate people and have to purchase as many as 230 homes. But once the state of New York drew the line, saying they would not be evacuating any further residents, that they would not be buying any more homes. Beverly Pagan 
and Lois Gibbs, the, the mother on 101st Street, began to look at other avenues, other ways of getting attention. And in February 1979, those two women, Lois and Beverly, received an invite to testify before Congress in front of a subcommittee that included a young congressman who was one of the youngest politicians in Washington at the time, who had a special interest in the environment. That man's name was Al Gore. <laughs> yeah, or, I read that. And that was my reaction. I was like, holy shit, Al Gore. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he was he was this unproven green congressman at the time, Albert Gore Jr., as he was still identified in the newspapers. Al Gore flies to Buffalo. He goes and he visits Niagara Falls. He's one of the few national politicians who visits this site at the time. He sees the contamination for himself. And then he returns to Washington and, and holds uh, days upon days of hearings in the spring that year, including one day where Lois and Beverly both testify. So I, I, I'm going to zip a little bit forward, too, because there's some other questions I want to make sure we have time to cover. Eventually, this idea of creating something called what we now call a super fund begins to emerge. And this is federal action. Can you walk us through a little bit about how the Superfund comes to be when it's signed into legislation and, and why it's important? The EPA, which at the time was only eight years old when the Love Canal crisis emerges, was keenly aware that they and the federal government were ill-equipped to, to clean up a pollution disaster like this one. And so, as often happens in Washington... EPA officials, very high ranking, seized upon this as a way to alter the landscape federally and give that agency, the EPA, power to intervene. And in fact, not just power, but money. And so they began to discuss a very large fund of money that would be financed primarily with taxes levied on industry. So this whole premise was the polluter would pay. And this very large fund of money, or a super fund, as some began to say, could be utilized in times like this to give money and power to agencies to remediate a problem. One thing I want to make sure I understand, you know, so going back, when Hooker sells the land for a dollar to the city, there is this clause saying, we're off the hook for forever. But to understand sort of the thrust of the super fund idea and who was going to be responsible for paying for any kind of remediation work at Love Canal or anywhere else? How, how does that work? I mean, I think Hooker ends up getting bought by Occidental. Is that right? Or some other multinational yeah. conglomerate? Like, help me understand who's at fault here and who's going to pay? So the Superfund legislation, both then and now, is a pot of money that is utilized to remediate or clean up a site. These days, it's often used to clean up what are known as orphan sites, uh, a site that was used by an old coal company that is long defunct and long, long dead. There's no one to sue. There's no money to ask for from the company. The company's gone. It's been a mix at Love Canal. You know, over the course of the 1980s and 90s, Hooker Chemical and its parent company, Occidental Petroleum, settled lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit with governmental agencies and with individual people and cla massive class action lawsuits. And I guess it's worth noting that it's it, incredibly, it's still not over today. 
there are still today, more than 40 years after this crisis came to light, there are still lawsuits pending in court in New York related to Love Canal. Now, eight months later, more and potentially deadlier chemical dumps have been found in Niagara Falls. And some officials fear the Love Canal will be only the first emergency where chemicals dumped long ago re-emerge as a far more direct threat to public health than ordinary air and water pollution. And I believe this is going to be the situation with a wide range of other Love Canals, which we're belatedly recognizing, all over the country. So... I've said throughout the conversation, I loved your book. I thought it was a total page turner. I got to the end and I was trying to think, what lessons do I extract from this? What do I take away from here? Especially, I mean, Generation Anthropocene is very interested in global environmental change, which is, you know, primarily issues related to, to climate, but it's more than that. It's biodiversity loss, it's mass extinction, it's population, it's, you know, a lot of big things happening to planet Earth. And the story of Love Canal, the story of the Superfund sites, I don't know that there's a nice clean answer to this, Keith, but did you come away from writing this book and learning the ins and outs of this story, thinking about the set of environmental issues we face today and what lessons can be extracted from it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's something that I recognized very early on in my research, long before you know I'd really written a word of the book itself. Was that um, this story, while more than four decades old, is incredibly relevant to all of us? I believe today, the problems in this place that we now know as Love Canal weren't created by one bad decision but by dozens of flawed decisions, uh, big and small, public and private, that played out slowly over time. This was the cost of the slow churn of capitalism and the slow churn of quarterly dividends and quarterly revenue and how much chemicals can we produce and what are we going to do with the residues? And equally, the changes that ultimately came in the end and the, the triumph of these ordinary folks in the end weren't the result of one uh, phone call, one letter sent to their congressman. They weren't the result of one march they attended or one protest they held, but the result also of dozens and hundreds of interactions over the course of two years these characters who are at the heart of this narrative in Paradise Falls, you know, went from being ignored by the small time officials in Niagara Falls, the school superintendent, the school board, city councilors, to within two years having the ear of the EPA, the White House, and even Jimmy Carter himself. You know, in the span of two years, they went from living in the shadows to having the spotlight and indeed scaring and frightening uh, some of the most powerful people in America who were worried about what Lois Gibbs might say, who were worried about what Beverly Pagan might find. Mm. And to me, that's the lesson for today. I can imagine being one of those families in the 70s. You know, 200 people are moved, but then hundreds more are like, you need to stay here and being scared shitless. 
being like, what is in the water? What is in the air? Is it okay for my children to go outside? And you got to go back to that home every day. And you got to you know, walk around, you got to walk your dog around the neighborhood. And you're, you're wondering, is this a safe place? I, I think that there's something global about that experience today, because I don't know about you. I meet a lot of people who are really freaked out about <laughs> what climate change and global warming are, we're looking are, are going to mean like is there an escape hatch somewhere and there's there's not right and the fear of being trapped i could relate to that in a kind of metaphorical sense you know, going back to something we said earlier there were indications for years even a couple decades that what was happening in this neighborhood called lasalle was sort of frightening and sort of alarming Rocks shouldn't catch on fire. Children shouldn't come home with their eyes burning or their skin burning from playing at the playground. Or blind for that matter, right? Right. Yeah. But, you know, people chose, including at times some of the residents, you know, chose to look away, to not delve too deeply about what might have happened there or what might be there. In, in that way, we're all, I think, to extrapolate out your metaphor from a moment ago, you know, we're all living in our own collective love canal right now. The signs have been there. They've been there for years. They've been there for decades. And, and each of us currently, you know, has that choice about how we want to approach our day. Are we going to um, look away from that alarming thing? that, that uh, upsets us or are we going to try to do something about it? And, you know, the change that happened in Love Canal only happened because ordinary people, you know, decided to delve deeply, decided to unearth that and unpack that scary thing and expose it for everyone and demand change, even if it would cost them their jobs, you know, as it would ultimately for Beverly Pagan. Well, there's so much more in the book that we weren't able to cover in this conversation, but that feels like a nice place to end. I really appreciate you having me today. It was, uh, it was great to talk to you about this. Yeah, Keith, pleasure was all mine. Congratulations on the book and best of luck with the publicity tour. I'm sure it'll be fun. <laughs> Thank you. Well, fingers crossed for, for COVID safety and a million other things. Well, thank you again and congratulations. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Generation Anthropocene. Again, Keith O'Brien's book is called Paradise Falls. It's all about the true story of the Love Canal. Highly recommend it. This episode was edited and produced by Maya Fawaz. Thanks so much to your help, Maya. I'm Michael Osborne. We'll see you next time.